Welcome to this podcast for Classical 91.5. I'm Julia Figueres. This week's RPO concert offers up a touch of spring, a brilliant younger sister, and two centennial celebrations. Ward Stair, your Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra's music director, has welcomed back a cellist who really wowed us all last year, Andre Ionitsa. I, of course, welcome them both into our studios. Welcome back, as always, Ward. Great to see you. And and Andre, thank you for being here. It's so nice to have you back. I'm very happy to be here again. I had not realized that when you were here the last time to perform Shostakovich, it was your American debut. Yeah, and uh, I guess, you know, what a way to (laughs) to start my (laughs) American orchestral career. Uh, uh, I still have very, very fond memories of my first collaboration um, with the Rochester Philharmonic. And uh, it's actually amazing that within... You know, last ten two years, I'm already back here. Oh, that's because we love you, <laughs> <laughs> and and we're glad to have you back. And, and I'm feeling very loved. So. <coughs> and you are going to be playing one of the great cello concertos of all time, which we will get to in a moment. But uh, I thought maybe we would stroll through the program a little bit, which begins with a taste of spring, Debussy's Printemps, which I I think would begins very much like Prelude to an Afternoon of a Fawn. It's similar for sure, um, and it's uh, it's a beautiful piece. It's an early work. It's kind of got a funny story um, behind it that I'm sure you probably have heard. Maybe not. Um, he wrote it when he was in Rome, so it was after he won the Prix de Rome, and you know he went there as artists who won the prize did, and he was uh, well. You know he was like many great composers, actually, kind of at odds with his teachers, and you know he. Anyway, long story short, he was supposed to, he had like assignments that he needed to turn in, and this was one of them, and he wrote it, but then supposedly he finished it, and then it got burned in a fire, is what he told uh, the people back in Paris, so it's kind of like the dog ate my homework kind of situation. So he didn't turn in the full orchestral version, he just turned in a chamber version and then forgot about the piece for a while, and it wasn't until later that it was orchestrated. And there were vocals in it, too. Yeah, it it was a wordless chorus that was involved, supposedly. I mean, nobody knows. This is what he said. There are air quotes Right, air quotes. He he said, oh, yes, I've written this beautiful piece, depiction of springtime, it has a wordless chorus and all these yada, 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 yada. They said, where is it? Well, it got burned in a fire. (laughs) That was it. And then it was uh, many years later, and I think it was Henri Bousset who helped him with his supervision um, orchestrated. And, you know, the the orchestration, it's good. It's a little bit over-orchestrated, in my opinion, in places. But so it creates a challenge to sort of pull out uh, the, the lines and, you know, get, get the textures just right. But that's what the French Impressionist style is about. Of course, Debussy hated that term, Impressionism, applied to music and applied to visual art. Did you know that? He oh, he, yeah. he always said, this is I, I don't like putting things in categories like this, but um, nonetheless, he's sort of credited as the first Impressionist in music. So, And yet, he was very inspired by, by fine art, by painting. Yeah, this, oh, absolutely. This piece was inspired by a Botticelli piece. Yeah, and, and also, also nature. I mean, he, it, it's... He didn't want to make a literal depiction of springtime. In fact, he wrote, I think, um, specifically that this isn't meant to depict, you know, specific things. Rather, it's the the emotions of springtime and witnessing um, the the slow rebirth of things at this time of year. So it could be a flower 
you know, starting to open or a blade of grass coming through, you know, the, the, the ground or, you know, uh, the birth of an animal or, you know, just a person walking around when the air starts to change and, you know, you get that sense that uh, spring is here. D- you know, so it is very impressionistic. The blossoming of a soul. Yes, absolutely. All those things. It's, it's wonderful. It's a beautiful image. And the two movements um, are kind of different in character. I think of the first movement more as the... Um, the experience, the birth itself, the creation, more organic. The there are, of course, a lot. There's a lot of rubato. There's a lot of pushing and pulling, speeding up, slowing down. You know, louder, softer, gentle waves of sound. But it's all very um, calm overall. Even though there are big lush moments, the second movement, however, is more human. I think it's more the reaction and the excitement, and you feel the, you know, the the buzzing of the energy and how that sort of makes your heart go pitter patter. You know, I, I feel like this should be a ballet. When I listen to it, mm. I, I always think it should be a ballet. That's. I wonder if that's ever been done. That's an I interesting idea. Let's look into it and make a phone call. All right, we'll do it. It should be done. Put it on the to-do to list. I will. <laughs> done. Um, so right after this beautiful <coughs> uh, piece by WC, comes the Elgar Cello Concerto. This is the first of two centennial celebrations on this particular program. This was uh, was recorded, was performed for the first time almost exactly 100 years ago mm-hmm. this week. That was yeah, uh, that's right. The 27th of October, <coughs> 1919. Um, it was Elgar's last major work for orchestra. And it also did not start well. No, well, it's, you know, it's a piece that uh, has a lot of layers. It's complex, and it's not easy to do well because you have to... The orchestra and the soloist have to really be always on the same page. It's chamber music. It's, I mean, it's like the most sensitive chamber music and the most, um, the most, uh, and it's operatic, like a recitativo, you know, in some places. And then, of course, it has the big romantic uh, moments as well. It's just got so much in the piece. And, um, you know, you have to, you need rehearsal time. And from everything I've read, that was the main issue at the the world premiere. It was not well oh. rehearsed and it was not well received and it was kind of a flop actually. It's a huge flop. Yeah. People yeah. people hated this, which so is So hopefully nothing like tomorrow. No, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> we are rehearsing it this week, folks, so don't worry. So this this is a piece, Andre, that um yeah. really didn't catch hold until the nineteen sixties and it was generally Jacqueline Dupre who right. who set this particular piece in yeah. m- motion yeah. and then Casals picked it up as well. Yes. So when you play this piece how do you push aside their interpretations to uh, make yeah, that you yours? Oh, you simply don't think about it. <laughs> um, it 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 is a it is quite a, a quite an uh, quite an issue uh, that all of the cellists nowadays have this this impression that nobody else is allowed to even perform the piece or no. There is also this misconception within the public that nobody else will be able to convey this. British wonderfulness other than Jackie. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's it's actually not that important who who has already performed it. At the same time, of course, such interpretation as, as hers became such a, such a staple that it probably is already in the ears and... Uh, and I said musical DNA of, of uh, every other cellist, which is another reason why I don't necessarily think about 
her interpretation anymore. Just because based on what I already listened in my childhood, I probably already created my own picture mm -hmm. about it. Yeah, and you know, and, and, uh, also what I tend to avoid nowadays is if I'm performing pieces that, you know, I already know or that are not completely unfamiliar, I never listen to recordings anymore. Good idea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't want to know what they're doing. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> I wonder about this, Andre, uh, and, and Ward as well, because this was a piece that was essentially a flop and was locked away in a closet. It's a beautiful piece. And I always wonder if it, if it, if it came back in part, it made such a hit because people didn't know it. So you had this, this very talented, very beautiful cellist come out and do this piece that people did not know well, and it immediately becomes a hit, and it immediately becomes hers. And, and I wonder if it just had to do with this hinky history that this poor piece of music had. I think it mostly has to do with, with Jacqueline Dupre herself. Mm -hmm. She was a genius through and through, and she lived thousand percent for every note that she played. Um, yeah, and on on top of it, it, it's also about, of course, the national and the cultural element that just fits so well together. So the piece begins with you. You really kind of set the tone with a, a, a solo line, and it's a dark line, and it's heartbreaking open to yes. this. I feel like you have to begin this piece of music, Andre, at 10, on a level of 10 of emotion. I mean, you're crying yes. when you start. But then you also need room to grow to 100 yes. <laughs> Exactly. by the end. Um, yeah, but you know, there, uh, this line, this, 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 uh, this, this very dark E minor. You know, you've got all the dark chords, even, even, even that in the in the cello, uh, cello solo beginning. Um, it's also very dangerous to overdo it. Um, and so, so many cellists uh, tend to over exaggerate the, the musical intentions, or to just uh, just draw the tempo. And to uh, to make it so lagging, so that it's, uh, maybe an audience member wouldn't even understand exactly what kind of beat fits in where, <laughs> you know, or what kind of bar uh, where 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 playing. Um, so that, that it's it's very important, I think, in this piece to to also keep some sort of balance and overview of the big phrase of the bigger lines. Um, you know, uh, you know, like the the main theme of. Of uh, um, of the first movement, uh, it it's basically uh, just a, a motive that is getting repeated and repeated all over again. But this line is so large; it goes over tens of bars that y you just need to have this this big harmonic overview as well. So, as you're doing this, Ward, uh, you're working with Andre. How do you keep something from going over the top? I always think about. Whenever I hear Tchaikovsky serenade for strings with Leonard Bernstein, it just makes me laugh <laughs> because nobody takes the the opening section slower than he does. <laughs> he just draws that well. thing out. So how do you? <laughs> is it a matter of pacing? Is it a matter of weight? How do you keep that melodrama from seeping in? Well, there are a lot of moments um, where <coughs> there there the pitfall is 
he'll play a beautiful line and then we have an answer but if he takes just a little bit of time which you know and i'm talking just you know a slight yeah. shaping at the end of a phrase and then the orchestra instinctively wants to join him and then do it themselves then it's like we get this cumulative expansion that actually doesn't serve the piece well so this morning you know i was reminding them a lot i said listen what he's doing is so beautiful i know we all know that but we we can't you know weight it down we actually have to gently help you know push it forward so it can always ebb and flow and that's sometimes that's very challenging um but you have to be in the right frame of mind to do that and you know i think just as you were talking here it, uh nimrod popped into my mind and the mm -hmm. reason is um i've you know i've conducted it many times and i've heard it performed many times live and you know when the best performance, the most poignant performance I've ever heard, and it, you know it's all about context too, was a live performance, the Philharmonia Orchestra in London a few years ago with Sir Andrew Davis conducting. So great British conductor, great British orchestra in London. And when they got to Nimrod, you know the whole performance was fantastic. And they clearly, it was personal for all of them, it meant a lot, but they had that British sort of, carry on, stiff, stiff upper lip kind of thing about it. So they didn't linger and they didn't dwell, but it had this beautiful shape overall from beginning to end. And when Nimrod was over, you could hear everyone else's hearts beating in the hall because they were all with it too, the audience. And then they just sort of, okay, carry on and moved. But the, the effect was just so stunning. I mean, and I compare that always in my mind to the, more, you know, along the lines of the Bernstein performance you just described where people just drag it out. And it is beautiful music, but you're not doing yourself or the composer any favors by adding to a piece that already is expansive. You know, you have to find ways to, to make it flow and make it move. So so if I hear if I hear this right, you gotta keep that pace moving. Do not linger, do not dwell. Well keep but, but 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 no 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 <laughs> but but see it's not that simple because there are places where you want to. You have to be strategic. The music like, great, yeah. yeah, we were and you know that's that's another thing that, that is uh, really critical in the interpretation and I was grateful um, when we started this morning, which was our first rehearsal, to learn quickly that Andre has a sort of uh, you know, a big picture uh, in mind, which you know, because I've done this I think this is I don't know, I was trying to remember I, the third or fourth time at least that I've conducted this concerto with all sorts of different soloists. And, I, you know, I've done it with people who were just like trying to copy Jackie's recording, which is, you know, not very original thinking. I've done it with people who try to do it even slower, which is really bad. And, you know, <laughs> and the other way, but I, I think Andre's approach is really very refined and thoughtful, and I appreciate that. Can you talk to us about that big picture, Andre? About the picture, about the, the big hills and the, um, the, the, the big and the the green uh, yeah, <laughs> grass. What is yes. your big picture of of this Elgar concerto? Um, the big picture. Well, of course, it 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 creates this you know this huge natural element that's always present. You know, in in Elgar's music, as we mentioned, even you know the. The third movement, for example, um, in in this concerto, really reminds me of of uh, of the famous slow slow Nimrod variation. Um, uh, but on 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 top of it, you you have so many moments of of uh, of humor, of wit, uh, sometimes even dry humor. Tip, you know, typically typically British, um, and. Uh, even if this is a tragic work with a tragic ending, 
uh, you s- there, there's always that sort of peak of hope and, uh, you know, almost an uh, apotheotic side to it by I the f- end. Again, typically British. Typically British. Well, and I, I think, sorry if I can jump in here, the, the context of it, too, is important because he wrote it right after World yeah. War One, and he was he was very vulnerable. Everyone was. They were feeling traumatized and wounded, you know, and you, if you play the piece, you know, with the big picture in mind and that overall kind of, you know, atmosphere, I think that can come across. There's a vulnerability that is so touching about this piece. And his music was not in favor anymore. He... No. The the youngsters had passed him by, right. and, and it feels it feels like this is very autumnal to me. It feels like mm-hmm. he knew darn well that that had happened. Yeah, yeah. So he was, um, in a sense, you know, lamenting the tragedy of the war, but also um, the passing of the Romantic era because it was really over by that point. It's a piece that you know when I first started here um, twenty years ago was was well loved and played a lot and it seems to have fallen out it it mm. feels like it, it that it's not being played very often at all and it it needs to come back what what is it about the piece for you andre that is so dear to you that you're you're playing this piece out oh i'm i'm a full time melancholic so <laughs> 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 um you know i i play the Last time I played another tragic work, I played the Shostakovich concerto. You know, it's all it's all within the <laughs> within my <coughs> perimeters. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, you know what, what what I find so dear about this music is it's it's so honest, and and uh, although it's 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 a work of such humongous, it's, it's a work of big proportions. You know, it has four movements. Not all cello concertos are of this magnitude. Um, and the structure, it's still so sensitive. And, and the themes it, uh, the themes themselves, they, uh, they're, uh, yeah, the, I would say the themes are rather introvert and, and just, just so elegantly put together. Mm-hmm. But then under this big symphonic frame, which, which is, I think, I find so wonderful about, about Elgar. Yeah, he writes for the orchestra something swell. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He really does. <laughs> Well, the second half of the program begins with a, a little sister, including a piece that the RPO has never played before, mm. which is very, very exciting. Two works by Lily Boulanger, Nadia Boulanger's brilliant little sister on a melancholy evening and on a spring morning. It's on a melancholy evening that the RPO has never played before. Uh, why Lily Boulanger? Well, her music... Um has been sort of enjoying a, uh, I don't know, a new life lately, which I think is great. It's it's about time. Unfortunately, uh, there's still a lot of questions in the air about a lot of the pieces, uh, especially the the last couple works and and the one melancholy evening that we're doing. Um, you have to make a lot of choices because she it was the last piece she was able to complete the music, but she wasn't able to complete the fine details at the end of it. So things like dynamics, articulations, uh, even some instrumentation issues were left undone. And it was actually Nadia, her older sister, who finished it. But so it's it's like a collaboration between the two. And it's it's a really touching, heartbreaking story, actually. But at the same time, you get the sense that, you know, you wish she had had another month or so, you know, I mean, you wish she had had another 
30, 40 years. She was 24 when she died, for heaven's sake. Um, but the ideas are there, but uh, the realization is somewhat incomplete. So, I mean, the score, the score that I have uh, this week is really, I mean, it looks, it's like a battlefield. I mean, things are scr- scratched out, crossed off, and it's copied in there, so I can't get rid of it. I mean, literally, I had to go through with like a magnifying glass and just try to figure out what the heck was going on in some bars. And then I went and listened to some performances, many performances, which I usually don't do when I'm studying, but I listened to what other people had done and every recording was different because, you know, the conductors and the orchestras, they had to make their, make their own choices. You know, do you double this line here? Yes or no. Do you include the bass drum? Do you, with the harp, with the timpani, you know, and every single time, it's been different and so i mean i dare say this will be again a unique (laughs) interpretation because you know we've had to make choices and that can be a a rewarding process but it's very difficult especially when you're trying to do the piece justice i mean you just wish she had left more information behind that was definitive you know but it sort of adds to the mystery of the whole thing yeah one of your uh, horn players actually put up on facebook a a photograph of one of the uh, pages Oh, really? And there it is with the cross hatching yeah, and the scratch outs. And I'm just, wow. What was the caption? Um, Do you remember? I, I will. I, I don't remember, but it, it was something I think about trying to uncover the great unknown. Yeah, well, that's really what, what, it's, what it's been like. But um, the piece, though, is really beautiful. And it, you know again 24 years old when she died she won she was the first woman ever to win the prix de rome uh we talked about that earlier because debussy was another prix de rome winner um she had an amazing future ahead of her and the fact that she she died of what we now call crohn's disease which is so manageable so treatable but back then 100 years ago it took people out and uh it was also ironically um around the same exact time as elgar was writing his concerto that she passed away uh, right at the end of World War One, and um, so uh, she didn't have a chance to fully develop her musical voice. But even in in the work that she left behind, you already see her really just fierce creativity, pushing boundaries. I mean, she uses modal language in a way that other composers hadn't start to do started to do yet. You know, so in, by that I mean the scales are not always you know the major minor scales we're accustomed to, she sticks modes in there, which gives it sort of this ancient, mysterious feel. She puts parallel. It always, (laughs) I I chuckled to myself a couple times as I was studying it because there's a lot of parallel motion, parallel fourths, parallel fifths. And anyone who takes harmony classes or voicing classes or counterpoint, you know, will know that the red pencil comes out in the French tradition, Nadia Boulanger. No, you can't, you know, when you, because you have to start with the Bach chorales and they teach that very rigorously first. And uh, you're not allowed to do that, but of course she knew all that, and then she broke all those rules, which I think is great. And and her sister allowed her to break all those rules. Well, absolutely. And you know, the two of them were sort of in uh, competition when they were younger, and then it was clear that Lily was the more talented of the two, at least as a composer. Of course, Nadia went on to become the preeminent pedagogue of you know a, a century. She taught everybody. Yeah, absolutely. But it's interesting; she never wrote another note of music herself, Nadia, after Lily died. She never did. And they're buried together, are they not? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. You know, I I ask you, not, you know, lightly, if if Lily hadn't had Nadia on her back, you know, really pushing her music posthumously, would, would this music have vanished? That's an excellent question, and I have no way of knowing, but I'm really glad that Nadia was there to, to carry on the legacy because they're treasures. 
especially the second piece, the, mm. the, the uh, Anna Melancholy Evening, especially. Uh, the, these written, were written toward the end of her life, as you said. In fact, it, that was her last piece. Do you think she knew? I get the sense that she did. I mean, there, there's a foreboding in it. There's a darkness. There's a sadness. There's a, there's a sense of, there's an autumnal feeling about it, to use that word again, even though she was 24. But, you know, she struggled with health issues uh, for much of her adult life, set her short adult right. life. And um, I do get a sense there's, there's a darkness there. There's a sadness there, for sure. The final um, piece that closes is the second centenary celebration, which is Stravinsky's Firebird. Now, this isn't a, a strict uh, 100 years. No. But, but the version that you are playing is, in fact, the 100-year version. Well, that's true. So yeah, 1919. Um, so it's the Firebird. Well, wait, can we, I'm sorry to interrupt you, oh, but please. can we talk about the spring morning briefly? Yes. The other Boulanger? Yes. Because I think it's it's worth noting that the two pieces are based on the same melodic material, and she treats them completely differently. So one, um, if you listen carefully, uh, listen to the clarinet line in the melancholy evening that comes in, I think, the third bar or something like that after the strings start this ostinato, this gentle pulsing. And then keep that, hold that in your ear before you hear the second piece because it's the same uh, frame, it's the same melodic frame that she builds this on. But the springtime, for all of the darkness and melancholy in uh, the melancholy evening and foreboding sadness, wait. She writes Lourdes, which is, you know, in French, heavy, so many times in the score, or maybe Nadia wrote it, but it's, it's, that's really the, the atmosphere. And then it says light, gay, joyful you know, in the second piece. So it's really the polar opposite emotion, and it does sparkle. It definitely has a fizz. It's a very different spring than Debussy's, It is, too. it is, yeah. This is this is a, a very... Um, High energy, hustle, bustle, yeah. A, very, yeah. a, a, a kick your heels up, yep. flippy skirt. Yep, run out in the meadow and have a great time. Yeah. Chase butterflies. It, it's, and there's such different pieces. That spring was written first, and then, yeah. and then autumn. Yeah. You know, when we listen to her work, it's funny. Um, every time I hear her work in the concert hall, and we don't hear it often enough, so thank you for programming mm. it. Um, I am always transported back in that era. There is something about the sound of Lily Boulanger's music that takes you right back into the 20s. Mm. And I don't know what it is, mm. but it's like a, a time machine. A beautiful, a beautiful time machine. Mm. I like that. So more Lily Boulanger, everybody's asking. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I wish there was more of it to choose from, but there are many good works out there. Yeah, that's, so. that's very difficult with her mm -hmm. because the, w what she wrote was beautiful, but there's uh, just so very, very yeah. little of it. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the Stravinsky now, <laughs> which was his first big piece. It was. 1910, he sort of... Um, you know, if you know his first symphony and some of his really, really early works, it sounds like... Um, I don't mean to sound disrespectful what I'm about to say by the way but it's sort of like a recycled Tchaikovsky or it's not he hadn't found his voice yet and um and of course he went on to reinvent himself three or four times throughout his career which is amazing I mean Stravinsky is one of my favorite composers of all time I think he's just uh, an amazing person amazing artistic personality and a visionary and it all began really with the Firebird in 1910 um he completely turned orchestral music you know on its head. It, it, nobody had ever heard anybody write for an orchestra like that before. An amazing thing to me about this, because it is this 
this groundbreaking piece of music, both for Stravinsky prof- professionally and personally, and for music as a whole. Yes, right. He was the second choice. Well, at least, or third, or fourth. I mean, I've heard it. Diaghilev was going down the list, and he heard about this talented guy, Stravinsky. And interestingly, I've been reading more about this in the last few weeks, and um, I read recently that Stravinsky was, you know, he was a very clever guy, and he had heard through the grapevine that Diaghilev was having trouble finding a composer, and he kind of knew that he might get an opportunity, so he started working on the music before Diaghilev actually asked him. And, and so Stravinsky was uh, very clever to not waste an opportunity. Yes, smart man, smart and man. Yes, and a very shrewd businessman, that's right. Right, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember reading uh, Piatigorsky's autobiography, mm. you know, this, this, this just delightful book, My Cello and I, Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, well, well, he did the, the, the cello arrangement for Sweet Italian uh, from the, Pulcin- the, yeah, the arrangement of uh, Pulcinella ballet music. And uh, yeah, apparently Stravinsky promised him, you know, we'll, we'll split all the profits 50 50 you know, and all the rights. <laughs> Piatigorsky was, you know, more than excited. Uh, and then when the contract came in, it was. It was the 50% out of the 10% for the arrangement because Stravinsky was getting the 90% anyway as a composer. <laughs> oh, forgot that small detail, right? Yeah. yeah. Did we forget to tell you that? Oops, mm-hmm. silly me. Yeah, he was a he was a very shrewd guy, and he he was very. Uh, he, wasn't he one of the first people that really started dealing with um, copyright, music copyrights? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I, and I think you know a lot of people say and I think in I think it varies from piece to piece uh, how much of a factor it was uh, but I've heard people say well the reason that there are multiple arrangements and suites of XYZ pieces because he wanted to refresh the copyrights and keep getting the royalties and blah 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 and I think you know there was some of that going on with some of the pieces but actually in the case of the Firebird I think it was more of a musical and practical decision for getting the piece performed because if you look at the 1910 score it, Stravinsky himself called it wasteful. It was, I mean, it's fun and it's sort of like a, being a kid in a candy store to, but it's very indulgent to to play it in that uh, orchestration because you know there are quadruple, at least quadruple woodwinds. I've forgotten now the extent of it, but it's enormous. And there are some colors that you know you don't get when you have the the more you know lean version. But at the same time, it makes it impractical to perform anywhere. So. So there are three, and there and are three, right? So I don't know what the difference well, is. Oh, Help but me out. You here. would though if you if we played them side by side. 1910, 1919, which is what we're doing this week, by far the most popular because it's the most manageable. And then 1945, which is actually um, one that I I really love too, and I'd, I'd love to do here someday because it's and you know ideally you could have a night where you do them both back to back and let the audience see the difference because i mean there are passages that are in both suites um that are orchestrated completely differently you know it might be a a trumpet doing something once in an oboe or a tambourine even in another movement you know sometimes with various gestures um and so it's really interesting the choices that he made and i think in the evolution of the suites so 1910 of course the original huge you know too big orchestration, even Stravinsky said. So 1919, much more manageable, economical. 1945 is kind of a halfway point in between. It's bigger than 1919, not as big as 1910. There's also more of the ballet included in it, so you get a more of a sense for the drama and how the music relates to the drama. I mean, for example, you know, at the end of um, 
the bersus, which is, you know, the, that beautiful, the lullaby with the bassoon solo. Um, those of us who are only used to hearing the 1919, you know, suite, which we're performing this week, may think that the lullaby happens and then there's this beautiful sort of transformational music that, you know, just progresses slowly and softly into that gorgeous horn solo that starts the finale. Well, it's not that way in the ballet. There's this whole other episode because everybody falls asleep in the ballet and that's the that's the bersus that we hear at the opening. But then right when that transition starts in the 1919 suite to the finale, there's this whole other thing where Kashi wakes up again and he's the only one. And then the firebird has to come and, you know, get him asleep again and then show Ivan how to get the, the golden egg and how to kill him finally. So it, it's interesting. It doesn't really affect the way you perform the 1919 suite, but it's just a curiosity. It's, it's interesting to know that something else actually happens there, you know, before we get to the finale. Well, that's an interesting point about the Firebird. And first of all, sign me up. I want to have Wouldn't that, that be fun? Yeah, I, I would love to do that. In fact, Nick, you could do it all three, and I would be willing to sit <laughs> through all three. I could just sit through this over and over it's again. It's such great music, isn't it? But it's so devoid now of... It, is, it has been so cut off from the actual dance. When, when we hear the Firebird suite, unlike Rite of Spring, for example, we're... The moving, the movement, the ballet is never that far away from mm-hmm. it. Virtually any any ballet written by Tchaikovsky, the dance is very, very close to it. But this has a life of its own that seems to be sans movement. Yeah, well, and it's been animated. It was in Fantasia, yeah. you know, which is a totally another whole different to- totally scared our kids. And totally viral YouTube videos. And viral YouTube videos, that's right. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it has enjoyed, you know, quite interesting life but um you know i another thing though that i think is worth mentioning and i I said it to the orchestra yesterday in rehearsal i said you know it's such a popular piece it's such a great piece that it winds up getting thrown on a lot of programs in a lot of different contexts and often it's on you know an outdoor program or even i've seen it on pops programs maybe a part of it or a, a an educational concert which is great because it's a great tool for all those things but the orchestra has one rehearsal or they just do it because everybody knows it and you sort of if you do that enough you lose sight of some of the little details so I'm grateful and happy that we're doing it on fills this week so we can really kind of polish shine up some of those moments that otherwise might get glossed over if we didn't have you know more than one rehearsal. Stravinsky, and you can really hear it in this, but I think that Stravinsky writes for winds virtually uh, better than almost anybody. It's pretty amazing how he writes for the woodwinds, it's true. He gives a lot of good lines to instruments that don't often get a lot of good lines. Mm-hmm. This, the man in the bassoon. Yeah, well, yeah, bassoonists yeah. love him. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Bride of Spring, and I mean, uh, Firebird, just to name two. When you uh, look at, at um, Stravinsky's career as an arc, you know, you talk about what a uh, an extraordinary man he was from top to bottom. Um, what is his biggest gift to us, do you think, that Stravinsky, because he, he gave us a lot, but was there like one thing that Stravinsky did that we all get to walk o- away with as, as, a, as his biggest gift? Well, I think for musicians, um, he, and, and you can translate this out to people who aren't even musicians because it's a broader theme uh, of reinventing yourself and never ceasing to be curious and to push the limits. I mean, he 
was a man who came out of this very, he, he lived a very long life, as you know, yeah. um, you know, born in the 19th century, died in the 1970s. I mean, just think for a second about everything that happened in his lifetime. Two world wars. I mean, everything that happened in the art world, visual and musical. It's it's incredible. Things that happened in European politics during that time, even beside the two world wars. Russia. I mean, God, he experienced so much. And he ended up, he started his life in Russia. He was in Paris for a while. He was in Switzerland. He was in, I mean, and then he was in Los Angeles. He came to the New World. You know, and most people at any, at, you know, pick any moment, uh, you know, of... Uh, crossroads kind of he came to so many crossroads in his life where I think 99.9% of people would have been like okay I've had a I've had a really successful career you know I've had a good life now I just need to play it safe he was never satisfied never and he always was looking for the next thing always that creative fire was burning so brightly in him till the day he died and I think that is so inspirational for musicians and for everybody to just know that you know, stay thirsty, my friends, to quote <laughs> the Dostoevsky's, you know, commercials. But it's really true with Stravinsky. I mean, he was so intense and, you know, just this fierce curiosity. He never, never got old. His music never sounded no. dated. Oh. It never sounded out of style, mm-hmm. out of mode. You know, we talk about uh, s- certain other composers who uh, essentially tried to adopt uh, the 12-tone system and it didn't work. It wasn't in their soul. But Stravinsky right. always seemed to to have um, something vital to to play, no matter what point in musical history there was. You know, mm-hmm. and 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 he became an American citizen in the end too. Yes, he so did. that's right. You know, such an interesting life. Uh, when you Andre play Stravinsky, what do you? What is your response to Stravinsky's work? Um, it's first of all quite a shame that we as Charlies don't get to play, you know, a, a piece that was originally written for us. Um, you know, this this sweet Italian is so wonderful, and uh, what I really enjoyed about his his uh, his music is is that even though he he used this new music language, he always goes back to you know primordial motives or or neo you know classicists. Uh, influences and uh, what I most like about his music is 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 the fact that he was just so darn smart. <laughs> yeah, and that, that there's always this element of, of freshness to it. Mm-hmm. It's never music that drags you down. So I think it's from this point of view, it's kind of the polar opposite of of an Elgar or Shostakovich. <laughs> the yin and the yang, mm-hmm. one side and then the other side. As well, when the last time you were here, you had a really fabulous cello. You have the same one still. Yeah, same one. Yeah, which is it's it's a Giovanni Battista Rogeri, uh, sixteen seventy one, generous loan of Deutsche Stiftung Musikleben, so a German German foundation for music life in Hamburg. How do you, how long do you get to keep that? They have an official program running for uh, young artists under thirty, so I have a few more y- years to go with it. Are you are you already starting to shop for for the replacement? Well, if there's any sponsors around, then <laughs> <laughs> He's you can contact me via Instagram and Facebook right now. That's um, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I want to thank you both for thank coming you. in and spending time for us. It's wonderful to have you back, Andre and Ward. It's always a pleasure. It's a beautifully programmed um, show, and 
I think that it's going to be a real treat. Well, thank you. To be there in the audience. Thanks again to Wordster and Andre Ianitsa uh, for talking with us today. I'm Julia Figueres. If you would like uh, information about the uh, Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra season, you can go to rpo.org. This podcast is a production of WXXI Public Broadcasting.